The following episode was recorded initially for the one-on-one podcast, but as the theme of our conversation follows very well the topics covered in Food Broken Promises, I decided to publish the episode again so that you don't miss out on this great conversation. So enjoy. It's my purpose in life to dismantle white supremacy. And I've come to terms with that as much as I wish it wasn't. Um, I have been given a gift to help people understand how to show up. I did all that I was supposed to do to, to play the game to be successful. But I realized that the box in which people wanted me to be in a nine to five spaces was a box for heterosexual, cisgender, white men, sometimes women. I could never do that. This is One on One, a table for two production. I am Antoine Aboussamra. If you do not fire the people who choose to continually be racist, homophobic, xenophobic, whatever it is, there are exceptions to the rule, above the rule, because that one time they were able to broker this deal and it was big because we're in these restaurants or whatever it is, then you're saying, guess what? None of it matters. Every week, One on One dives into the world of food and wine through the eyes and experience of my guests. In each episode, you will discover their journey, what matters to them, the challenge they have faced, and how the world of food and wine is evolving. Change is inevitable. <laughs> it's always going to happen. So why am I fighting it? And then I was like, oh, because there's fear. What can happen on the other side? But usually on the other side of fear is happiness. Good afternoon. <laughs> Again, it's a pleasure <laughs> to welcome Dr. Akila Kadeh, the founder of Change Kadeh. It's a wonderful pleasure. Thank you for being on One on One. How are you today? I am having all the feelings and emotions, but very excited to be here and to chat with you. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. There was, there was something the first time we, we spoke that I realized about your, your level of energy and dedication in what you do. And we spoke about you know, the mixed feelings and, and things like that. And the, the recent news uh, from a few days, a couple of days ago, uh, have been terrible coming from the U.S. And there's been you know, people raising voices all across the world about it. You had the shooting in the Uvalde school. Uh, there mm-hmm. was Buffalo. There was also mm-hmm. the second anniversary of the killing, the assassination of George Floyd. So many mm-hmm. things happening at the same time. And how do you cope with that much or that many issues coming at once and all the time and it's it's not stopping it's not so these things are expected doesn't mean they aren't hard uh to process or frustrating irritating um or you're angry and that's why i'm saying i have all the feelings and emotions right now because of what's happening here in the u.s um i think cope is an interesting word and i go back and forth on if it's a place of privilege Uh, to be able to cope. So in this type of work, when these types of horrific things happen, um, that means I have to be available to my clients because there may be an internal message or statement, support for employees or an external um, statement that may need to happen as a result of this. What do we do and how do we do it appropriately um, to come from a place of care and concern and not necessarily just thoughts and prayers, um, which Americans like to say a lot. I will have an outgoing message that I will put on uh, my email. Um, yesterday's outgoing message was America's fucked. 
And then I directed them to a post of um, talking about how I feel about the incident mm-hmm. uh, with uh, the elementary school massacre. And I just tell them we're not available. If there's an emergency. Here's the emergency line. Contact us. But we're just we're not available because I need the space to process. My team needs the space to process because we know we have to support folks uh, through this. So there's that. Um, I try to make sure I eat. I do my best to maybe watch something that's funny mm-hmm. um, so that I can be reminded of joy. So I do it all that I can to find uh, pockets of joy. But it's unfortunate that we have this continuous pattern and already we're not even half the year. Um, we have had 212 um, mass shootings. Yeah, they were saying there's a, something happening every day. There, there are yeah. shootings happening every day, every day, every day. And, and very often, these are yeah. minorities that are being targeted. Or elders, churchgoers, children. You know, these are individuals who aren't threats in any way. But they're weak. And then, yeah. They're the weaker part of society. Or are they just human beings? Yeah, but in the right. sense of, of the attacker, these are, these are easy targets at the end of the day. Well, it's not necessarily easy targets. Is mm-hmm. how do you send the message of, of hate? How do you send the message of upholding values of white supremacy? And you go to places to, um, they're not weak. I want to be very clear. They're not weak, but it's a place where you can instill fear. So we have Black people who are afraid to go to a grocery store right now. We have um, Taiwanese churchgoers who may be afraid to go to church. We have parents and caregivers who are afraid to send their kid to school. We have kids who are having nightmares now because that could happen to them, right? Because we live in a place where there's really no separation. You can't really protect, you know, even how we grew up, it was like in the newspaper. And if you read the newspaper, you, you would know, and no one would watch the news, but now with social media, how everything's available and how people want to talk more about these things. It's really hard to not, you know, to, to protect people from what's going on. And then you also mentioned that we have the George Floyd Remembrance Day. Um, it's really important that people say it's George Floyd Remembrance Day and not the anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, because why would we want to celebrate that? We can remember how he was a important person in history for changing mm-hmm. the way things were done, right? We can remember that he was a father, you know, we can remember that he was a human being and, and loved, but we shouldn't have that anniversary of something that was so horrific. Now for me, um, that day, May 25th, 2020, is a day in which my life changed forever because that's when white people felt my life had more value. And that was through folks wanting to come in and work with my company, my consultants, myself, and my team. And so that day is a reminder of how hard I have been working. And that day is also a reminder of how little change we have made from this horrific murder that went around the world. Like everyone knew all about Mm -hmm. it. We had protests and campaigns, and then we have companies who want to you know, put together diversity statements and hire diversity consultants and, you know, change. We see a lot of change, obviously, in the wine industry as a result of, you know, the murder of George Floyd. But, um, you know, it's always a, a moment of reflection for me to say, how how am I going to show up in this next year to the nether marker of George Floyd Remembrance Day? And it's a time for me to remind folks to reflect on what they've done 
since the last George Floyd Remembrance Day. At the beginning, why did you go into this field of work? Why did you want to try to instill change for people to look at others the same way as they are, whether they are black or, you know, of color or indigenous or Asian or that there's no differences? Why in the first place did you start? Because there's a lot of people that talk about it. That's one thing. But there are people that are really active, like you are, because there's a message that you want to get across and there's change that you want to bring. Why why Mm -hmm. go into this in the first place? Because I did all the things white people told me to do. I'm an undergrad. I have a master's degree. I have a doctorate. I am a non-threatening person. I sound the way I sound. I look the way I look. I did all that I was supposed to do to, to play the game to be successful. But I realized that the box in which people wanted me to be in a nine to five spaces was a box for heterosexual, cis, gender, white men, sometimes women. Mm-hmm. I could never be that. I could never be that. That's wasn't designed for me. And so since that box wasn't designed for me, I experienced discrimination, harassment, bullying. And if I felt that with all the things I was told to do, society and by white people, then there are those who have the same amount of degrees or more than me who feel that, or less degrees or no degree who feel that. And so I asked myself a question, what could I do to fix that? And that's how Change Today started. And since you started, were you able to see some changes? I've definitely seen changes with clients that we're working with. Um, You can see, in general, changes with certain companies and how they are presenting themselves and how they are diversifying their, even their ads, their social media. Like You can see those things. So I do think there's some incremental change happening. But overall, when it comes down to like the current events that are happening in America and people are like, oh my gosh, how can this happen? It's like, where have you been? It's been, it's been like this. Mm, since the beginning. Yeah, yeah, since the beginning of town. And America was, was founded on white supremacy. There's no way around that, right? Um, so it is a, a place in this work that I do where I'm celebrating the little ones. And those little wins can be attitude, behavior, the way someone's talking, the words they use um, to the, the bigger wins, which would be, hey, we're going to hire X, Y, and Z folks. We're going to hold ourselves accountable for our data. We're going to um, make sure our actions and words match with that shiny diversity statement we have on our website. Yeah. We're going to make sure that we're holding ourselves accountable to that with our goals, objectives, or KPIs, or whatever they want to call them. But is it, is it, do you feel it's, it's real change? Do you think that it's really deeply rooted change or is cosmetic change that to begin with? Because they have to project a certain image in view There's of what is happening. And then, yeah. and then the real thing happens really inside where it becomes part of their nature and not just something that they do to project the image to the outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're talking about a lot of, performative behavior, performative action. So if you think of a performance, someone's putting on a show, they are not being themselves, but they're putting on a show and they want to make the money or give the audience what they're looking for. And we see that with a lot of brands, right? And with a lot of organizations. Um, 
the, the problem there is that the actions and words don't match. And so there are some companies that are realizing that, oh, we have to have sustainable actions. We have to hold ourselves accountable through our data, you know, um, not censoring our data, <laughs> right? Um, making sure that we are changing our leadership so there's more diversity that's there. That includes um, people of color or BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color, disabled, the LGBTQ plus community and so forth. So that there can be different voices and those different voices can result over time and change. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that when you're looking to change an organization, it's not gonna happen overnight, just even with change management. But when you add in diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging and or anti-racism, it's a different type of change because you have to work on individual behaviors. So if you were do, doing a, a change or like we're going to rebrand our um, this particular label, right? It's easy. This is, we're doing this. We're going to have a focus group. We'll put it together. We'll test it. We'll have it. We'll promote it. And hey, this is a new label. And people are like, this is a new label. But if you're saying, hey, we want to hold you accountable for your DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, people are like, no, but I like, I really enjoy being racist. I, I really like being homophobic. So why are you making me do this? I mean, that's what it comes down to. Why yes, are you making me do this? Is. Right? I don't want to be held accountable. I want to say an offensive joke. I want to harass someone. You know, don't tell me what to do. So that takes a lot longer. Is that, is that but the hard part? Yes. Go ahead. Is that easier in smaller entities and smaller companies? It is. No, it doesn't matter the size of the Oh, company. okay. I thought it would have been maybe easier when you have less people. Nope, doesn't matter. What matters is firing people. Oh, yeah, the ones that don't actually buy into right. the changes. It's not buy into the changes. It is accepting, practicing. Being the change. Institutionalizing. Yeah. yeah, those changes. So, yeah, we have to get buy in in general. When we're talking about our individual mm -hmm. self and how we're showing up in these respective workplaces, they have to be willing to make the change. And that changed me to be like, I really enjoy being racist, but I'm going to apologize when I touch someone's hair, <laughs> right? It could be that too. I know how it sounds, but it could be that too, because that is the culture they want. And that's where a lot of companies fail because they want to do all these things. Maybe they're coaching and giving you resources and there's workshops and you have a consultant or you have a head of diversity person that's there. But if you do not fire the people who choose to continue to be racist, homophobic, xenophobic, whatever it is, there are exception to the rule, above the rule, because that one time they were able to broker this deal and it was big because we're in these restaurants or whatever it is, then you're saying, guess what? None of it matters. Because that one person is using their privilege to get away with whatever that is. So it's really the firing, regardless if you have 10 employees or 10,000 employees, you have to fire people who feel that someone's else's experience in the workplace doesn't matter so it's it's instilling that real culture change and by making sure that the people that are in the company are following that culture yeah but as long as money and profit is the mm -hmm. ultimate goal and the human beings is secondary to that there's going to mm -hmm. be some problems no yeah but that people are choosing racism they're choosing ableism They're choosing homophobia and xenophobia. It's not hard. If people are like, well, I don't want to lose money because we're going to actually make sure everyone feels valued and appreciated, or I don't want to lose money because we're going to have more black people in our campaign, or I don't want to lose money because we're going to 
hire more um, sommeliers who are mm -hmm. of color, then they're upholding values of white supremacy. So the second thing to hiring is you have to sacrifice, right? You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable with making the changes. Because if you only go so far, you're being performative. True. Right? And that's why ally, I hate allyship, cannot stand allyship. Allyship is a waste of time. Um, and it's because it allows for comfort. So it's like, oh, I have privilege and I want to use it to this extent. But if I have to lose money or if I no longer could work with this company that recently had a story come out of how um, women are treated unfairly. Yeah, no, I'm going to stop right here. If I stop mm -hmm. right here, this works for me. And that allyship allows for comfort. When someone, a leader moves past allyship to being an accomplice or advocate, whatever word you want to use, they're saying, okay, I have a lot of privilege. I have a lot of power here. And if we really want to make sure we are creating a culture of belonging, we can no longer keep that engagement with a person who treats women horribly. Yeah, but that that asks for for a change in complete mindset because the you know if you look at the capitalist system at the end of the day, the objective is profit, so bottom line, yeah. revenues, and these are the things that are the, the most important for them. So when you start talking about things that are related to human beings, it doesn't register very well in their you know in their software <laughs> the way they think. And that, yeah. that's that's complicated. Is the is the wine world a bit different because it has been very for and it's been for a long time very male, very white, very. Uh, do you ha have you seen changes there? So the wine world has a lot of nepotism in it, mm -hmm. a lot of elitism um, that comes through and and privilege. And so when wine folks here like, okay, we're going to diversify. They're like, yeah, but can that consumer buy our wine? <laughs> <laughs> right so those those are the or do we want them to drink it and and again it's because of that elitism that's mm -hmm. there certain wines and obviously there's wine at every price point but certain wines are for certain people only right and so that there's an additional layer of um cognitive behavioral change that has to happen right of realizing like oh tequila <laughs> actually can't afford the $500,000 bottle of wine. And, and that's okay. Or, you know, maybe we're doing some leaders, some small little, you know, bottles so people can start to enjoy and develop their palate. Or I don't know, regardless of how a person identifies, it could be uh, the white woman who works at a tech company here in the Bay Area who has a lot of disposable income. You know, she wants to also consume wine too. I think the other hard part about the wine industry is that they're forgetting that their consumers are dying. <laughs> There's another way to say it, especially when you think about fine wine, they're dying. But those who are, who are dying off had nowhere near as much wealth as the generations now, mm -hmm. millennials and millennials because of the tech industry. Mm -hmm. And so there still has to be a general shift, regardless again, It could be a white person. You can think all of white people. There has to be a general shift to who the consumer is and how the consumer is more conscious than before. So let's say they have 500 to buy the bottle of wine, but if they see that the company only, you know, has no people of color on their Instagram or their website or marketing or branding, they may decide to not buy it yeah. because they want someone to say like, Hey, we care about people or we care about the environment or we care about both. Right. Um, that's going into it. So there's that additional layer of nepotism, that changing consumer 
Um, and I would also say how social media is also an important part of wine culture now too. And so there's a lot of adjustment that's happening there. Because at the end also, the consumer has so much power after all, they can decide who they can shop with or not. Right. Have they realized that? That if you just want to be a, a purely capitalistic outcome, you know, not really thinking about doing good and things like that, and from my bottom line, if I don't sell to the BIPOC community, then I may have a problem in my bottom line. Yeah, but if you're if the BIPOC community, you don't want to do anything there, then it's not a problem, right? So there's that additional layer that's there. So what's happening... Let's say, fine, you don't want to sell to a BIPOC market. Then what are you doing about your, your workforce mm -hmm. there? Are you still just passing it down to the family, family, family? And so it's just super white, white, white and white. Or are you thinking about, hey, um, who can we bring in who can add some more diversity in our sales team, our branding team, right? Uh, marketing team, um, anything in-house, back about, what are you doing? You know, to do that, right? So at least there's representation. What are you doing to make sure they feel belong because they're going to go into a really, you know, white environment beyond a fellowship? I think they're mm -hmm. great and ever, but geez, fellowships are just performative in the wine industry if you aren't at least having one position that someone could at least have an opportunity to apply for to get into. It's Do you see a tipping point coming or it's still going to be, you know, back and forth trying, you know, they're going to try to do it. Not really until a point there's really something that it's, it's like they can't anymore. They really have to change. Is it going to happen? I, I think so. I mean, I think the first tipping point will be obviously be around climate change. We're already seeing that in the mm -hmm. past couple of seasons, right? Of what's happening. So, you know, there's um, adaptation that has to happen around that. Um, I bring up climate change because it's the same transferable skill set. Something has happened. We need to do something about it, right? And so as more wine brands, companies, industries realize that, I think that gives them the ground rules, the foundation to work on diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and, and anti-racism. Mm -hmm. Climate change is easier for people in the wine industry to understand because it affects them. You know, being a Black person who walks into a winery who's only offered rosé is something they don't experience or overlooked or not given the same, you know, service um, as the, the white couple, right? That's there. They don't have those experiences, but I think there's an opportunity to say like, okay, if I'm feeling this way, how, how are other people feeling when something is at risk or, or, or threat, right? Um, and so that's what I'm hoping will be a tipping point. And if not, you know, America is still very into cancel culture. And so, you know, there may be some, some leaders, some executives, some brands that will be called out in, you know, the next couple of years um, that could also create a shift as well. So we spoke about the environment. We spoke about the, uh, the, the, the changes that are taking place. Um, I want to go back to your story. I want to go back to, to you and and so you, you the shift was the killing of George Floyd two years ago and after that you you started to see that the, the work that you started doing before that it was bearing fruition it's very complicated to be an activist because you know, people think it may be easy because you're out there and you're speaking your heart out and you're saying you know the truth that people don't want to hear or don't want to avoid But 
there, there are two things, there are two downsides. One is how to keep on being motivated. It's not very easy, I would suppose, on day in and day out to do that on a daily basis. And the second thing is about the pressure that you have. Because when you're outspoken, it's an easy target for people that are against what you, you know, the values that you are upholding and that you want to promote and the change that you want to bring. How do you deal with these two aspects? It's my purpose in life to dismantle white supremacy. And I've come to terms with that as much as I wish it wasn't. Um, I have been given a gift to help people understand how to show up, whether it's, you know, my followers on Instagram or the companies I work with or the talks that I do or the podcasts that I'm on. Um, and so instead of fighting it, I've embraced it. So there's that. Um, I mean, I traumatize myself every single day doing this work, um, which is why I have therapy every week um, <laughs> to process what I'm doing because what I'm asking these companies to do, I have experienced um, in one way or another. And so I am always in a position of making sure I can protect myself to um, do this work. Um, and then kind of tying back to your earlier question, I use a lot of humor. I have a lot of energy. And that's me. And you have great humor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, uh, I do that for myself so I can do this work. I know it puts people at ease and there's comfort that's there, but I have to make something that is very negative, taxing and traumatic, um, something that I can view as positive, helpful and fun. And I do, I really do love this work. And don't get me wrong, I would love to marry up and just you know, kind of pick and choose the projects that I would want to do. Um, but I'm not there yet. And maybe at some point, um, but yeah, that's pretty much how I, 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 deal with that but i also um i also talk about it too which i think is important mm -hmm. because there are so many white people in general who are like i don't want to you know why do i have to do all of this and that and blah 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 it's like hello <laughs> i have to do that right now so i have to when i'm asking people to be comfortable with being uncomfortable that's me i'm uncomfortable right now but i'm so comfortable being uncomfortable and that's because once I entered in white spaces, I had to learn how to navigate white spaces. And I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood. So that was preschool for mm -hmm. me. And that continued through 12 and college. And right now, like it's, it's always happening. So I've have more experience of learning how to be comfortable being uncomfortable. But I do that. And then by telling that story, in addition to living with disability and living in chronic pain, if I can do this, if I can show up every day, if I can have energy, if I can bring in humor, if I can work through something that's incredibly hard to do, this type of work is incredibly hard to do because I hear horrific things all the time, um, then they can do it. There's no excuses. No. But no they still find excuses. Oh my gosh, yeah. Because, because change is as hard. a white, change isn't. Well, if you if you want to, it's not right. I mean, change to, it comes down to it. It's a choice, right? Am I going to work out today, or am I not going to work out today? I'm not going to work out today. Are you going to like be upset that you didn't work out? That was your choice. You can work out tomorrow, or you can work out later today, right? Yes, they're just choices. But people, when they are resistant to change, they want to hold on to comfort. Mm -hmm. And when you hold on to comfort, then you're just benefiting yourself. You're just taking care of yourself. 
But if you want to be anti-racist, you have to think about other people. (laughs) So you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable because we don't know everyone's lived experience. So change isn't hard. It literally is a choice of how you're going to show up. So if you show up, you know, consistently for, you know, advocating for yourself, obviously, Mm -hmm. and advocating for Mm -hmm. others, great. But if you are selective in that, you're making a choice to, again, uphold values, white supremacy, homophobia, whatever that thing may be. I used to hate change. I was not into it. I'm a child of divorce, had to move to a different house, like all the stuff. Very, very resistant to change. But then I realized, I'm like, "Hmm, change is inevitable. (laughs) It's always going to happen. So why am I fighting it? And then I was like, oh, because there's fear. What can happen on the other side? But usually on the other side of fear is happiness. Mm, it's an experience. It's understanding like, oh, you know what? I definitely don't want to do that again, but I'm happy I did it. So now I know. So now I don't have fear around that thing anymore. But as a white person in America, you've been told you're right, great, true, you're supreme, you're superior, hence white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And so when you're told like, hey, you can't touch my hair or, you know, you can't say peanut gallery anymore, then that's where they'll go inward because they want to go back to safety and comfort where they're always right and true. But they forget that I'm never right because I'm a black disabled woman. So everywhere I go, I have to prove who I am. I don't do that. My name speaks for itself. And if they disrespect me, it's their problem. And I won't be nice to them. Okay. Um, but, you know, I, and I bring that up because, again, it, I have to process trauma, these events, how I will not be believed. Even if I'm introduced as Dr. Akila today, people still will not value me. Um, but I do it with energy and a smile. And we love that. Because it's, <laughs> it's important to, to show the way. Right. what you're doing because they can't say we didn't know they can shut right. their eyes they can mm-hmm. shut their ears mm-hmm. if they don't want to hear but they can't say it doesn't exist it's not there it's just right. like like okay it's in front of you you can't mm-hmm. ignore it if you want to ignore it you can't ignore it don't say i didn't know right. i think nowadays it's impossible to say i didn't know mm-hmm. and that choice is is there yeah. Well, I mean, people don't know what they don't know. So it is possible to a certain extent, but there's so many resources out there to figure out why you didn't know it, you know? Um, and so once you have an opportunity to be informed, are you processing that? Are you doing more additional research? Do you understand it right away, which is fine. So you're moving forward differently, but those are the, the options. And that's a product of white supremacy for people empowered to not know what they don't know because it allows them to still be comfortable and not be held accountable. When you when you started Change Cade, what was your notion of success? What was the definition of success at the beginning when you started it? Uh, to, to be able to pay my bills. It was very simple. <laughs> it was very simple. I wanted to pay my bills and I wanted to build a team. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Check, I've check. Able to pay my bills. <laughs> I probably exceeded my goals more than I thought I would. Or maybe not. I don't know. Um, But I I wanted to be able to create a working environment where I was supported because I wasn't supported in other uh, environments. And that's what I've been able to do. Yeah. So that was the beginning. Now, what is it? 
Mm-hmm. Now it's just probably to work with Beyonce, you know, <laughs> <laughs> has to be something that's fun and, and uh, motivating. Um, last year it was, I want to get a book deal, but now a book deal. So now it's just work with Beyonce. So <laughs> fair enough. Next year. If it takes a year yeah. to, to happen, then the <laughs> next year is going to be there. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're going to get close. To, we can, I can go for hours. It's a fascinating conversation <laughs> because, I, yeah, the energy that you have in what you're saying is, is, is amazing. And, and you use you that know, word very often, amazing. Amazing? Where? Yeah, because I'm, I'm amazing. So why do you why do you say that? Why is that motto coming back? And and because I saw that in you know in on the website, yeah. So it's always I, I there. signed my emails. Yeah, totally. I signed my emails, keeping amazing. I did that for years when I started getting into my own business, and then um, I eventually I put on, I have it on the t-shirt and like a crew neck that says "keeping mm-hmm. amazing," and and I say it to people, and they're like, you know, they make a face. And then if they don't feel amazing, then they do at that moment and then, or they'll say it back or, you know, they'll say, thank you. And I think those are all wonderful responses. Um, but I say it because I um, live with the, the risk of death every day. I can have a heart attack at any moment in time. Um, Cause my body thinks it's having a heart attack every day. It's part of my disability. And I live with the symptoms of a heart attack. So pain in my left arm, I'll get uh, chest pain regularly, shortness of breath. Um, so there's that. And then um, I have uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So my body doesn't make enough collagen. So I have um, joints that like to dislocate, come out whenever they want. I could walk and my ankle gets stuck and I have to put my ankle back in. Um, some days things are inflamed and I can't walk on them. So I'll have to use a cane. Um, my uh, spine is hypermobile. So it's like never in the right uh, position. So I live in a lot of chronic pain. It is not lost on me that I do really hard, difficult work and I get up and do it every day in pain. And that's nothing short of amazing and the risk of death and then the additional risk of death because of COVID, um, because I'm already at, I'm at a disadvantage because of my, my heart. So um, I, I tell myself that to keep being amazing while doing this. So my, my mantra is get up, be amazing, go back to bed. Please keep on being amazing all the time. <laughs> I mean, thanks. And the reality is I'm going to do it as long as I can do it, you know, as long as my body is going to allow me to, to do it. And that's why I'm saying like building a supportive environment for me was, was helpful because I started this company as a side hustle for about a year-ish and then went into it full-time. And then a year after I went into it full-time, I started having heart problems. And then eventually from heart problems, we found out these other um rare things that I live with. Um, my kidneys can fail at any time. Anyway, so I live with a lot of fun, <laughs> like fun things, fun of sarcasm. Um, and uh, I'm able to have a team that supports that. I'm able to have a work schedule, you know, that supports that so I can be as present. I work very hard, but to be as present as I, as I can be. Wonderful. And the world is a better place because you're there. Hopefully. Unfortunately, as I say, we're getting close to the end but before that the pivot questionnaire yeah. so it's the first thing that comes to your mind and there's no censorship the first thing that comes to my mind yeah when i ask you the questions okay got okay it. so first question what is your favorite word fuck what's your least favorite word no what's your favorite virtue communication what's your favorite quality in a man 
communication. <laughs> What's your favorite quality in a woman? <laughs> communication. <laughs> okay, what wine or dish would you use to describe yourself? Will be Lambrusco because I'm unassuming, you know. So you're like, oh, I'm having a rope. There's a bubble. There are some bubbles Ooh. in there, and that's me. Yeah. <laughs> and then it gets you. <laughs> yeah. Lambrusco, <laughs> great choice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What aroma or smell do you love? It's a tie between rose and lavender. Mm. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite curse word? Fuck. Again. <laughs> <laughs> What sound or noise do you love? Laughter. What sound or noise do you hate? Nails on a chalkboard. Oh. What plant or animal would you like to be reincarnated in? Sea turtle. Mm. Yeah. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You kept being amazing. Dr. Akila Kade, thank you so much. And keep on being amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much.